Good morning, Dr. Kaysinger. As you know, I normally wouldn't be contacting you right now, but uh, situations here are running dire. Not only does it appear certain patients at this facility are uh, gaining sentience, but your deadline for this project's completion is suffocating. Further experimentation is simply required. Oh, but first, where are my manners? Why, I think I owe you a bit of small talk, don't I? You know, in my off hours there's been one thing that's really been on my mind. Stories. No, 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 not those stories of knights in shining armor or aliens in space. I mean real, true stories. I'm talking those drawn from real experience. Like a cut of cloth from the tapestry of a real, genuine person. Why, in the position you've given me, I've gotten the chance to hear some truly riveting stories from every patient that's passed through these doors. There's something truly marvelous to be said in how each and every story reflects so deeply on the one who tells it, isn't there? Before I get officially started today, I'd like to first take a moment to appreciate some of these stories. Enclosed in each one of these tapes is a personal story told by one of our darling subjects. The first of which is patient number 293, as she recounts the tale of Pinocchio and the Big Blue Whale. So, Pinocchio. Everyone knows that movie, right? I used to love it. There was so much whimsy and joy in every little bit of it. Every song and every little bit of animation just radiated happiness. I used to force my mother to watch the movie with me on end. The story was always so... <laughs> He's a wooden boy wished to life by a hopeful creator and a blue fairy, conned into joining a circus performance, tricked into indulging in the world's wickedest vices, yet at the end of the day he grows up to rescue his dutiful creator from the jaw of a giant whale, and only then did he become a real boy. How... Is that fair? He's lived a full and exciting life doing things no kid his age could even dream of. But with a fulfilled promise, a hint of luck, and a smidge of bravery, he becomes a real boy. That movie, I felt like it understood me. I knew what Pinocchio felt like, being that outsider, that one person who wasn't real, and being reduced to just an oddity or someone to be exploited because of it. I know, I know, it's a bit weird to compare yourself to an animate puppet, but it gave me hope, something to cling to. Nothing else ever gave me that hope. There was another reason I liked Pinocchio. He, like me, had that little voice in his head, his conscious, that lovable little cricket named Jimny. He always knew how to tell good from bad, right from wrong, real from unreal, honestly. Every single conflict in that movie happened because the puppet refused to listen to a word Jimny Cricket said. It felt sometimes like I had my own Jimny Cricket. 
Those voices that always command me, tell me to act as they'd act, do as they do, think as they think. I was a kid when I liked that movie, okay? I couldn't have been older than five or six. That was around the time my symptoms started surfacing. I was never told what they meant, what they were, or even that they were unusual, that they were not real. My mother didn't want to tell me. She didn't want to put any pressure on me. It'd be like if Geppetto never told Pinocchio he was made of wood and it was the puppet's job to understand that. I was left in the dark without a single clue on what anything meant. That movie and Jimmy Cricket, they gave me something to latch onto, and they gave me a frame of reference for those voices. I can pinpoint the exact moment I stopped liking that movie. I was nine or ten or something. My mother decided I was finally old enough to bathe unaccompanied, so naturally those voices, one in particular, tried to convince me I was a fish. I was the big great whale and this was my domain. They encouraged me to bask in the glorious waters to submerge myself. I'm sure you can see where this is going. They wanted me to drown. Right when I was on the verge of listening to them, embracing the feeling of my lungs filling with water, my mother came in. She wasn't sure if I was ready to be on my own. I wasn't. If she hadn't, I don't know if I'd still be here saying any of this. Those voices didn't care about me being a real boy. They were the reason I was different. From that day, I kind of gave up on liking that movie. Even now, though, at least I can hold on to the hope that, with a fulfilled promise, a hint of luck, and a smidge of bravery, she might finally become normal again. Patient number 293 is by far one of the most irregular cases we've had in quite some time. Her normally cheerful temperament has been increasingly interrupted by bouts of unadulterated, um, what could only be described as mania. And though it's worth keeping her condition in mind, Dr. Spielrain has cited that the patient has seen visions of an undead salamander. Make of that information what you will. The next tape I have on file is from patient number 301, the heir to our partnering pharmaceutical company, and a real pain in the neck. Within the first few weeks, I managed to extrapolate his musings regarding the company, and the wide shadow it supposedly casts upon him. What he has to say is, well, (laughs) frankly hilarious. In 1752, Henry Elodia as well as the entirety of the Elodian clan, traveled the great Atlantic Ocean in hopes of finding great wealth in the New World, the Western mystery that had yet to be explored, according to my sources. By no means was the family impoverished in their home country of England. Rather, they were remarkably well off for the time period. They had a very successful business selling expensive herbal tea, in fact. But Henry, he was intelligent. He knew the chance to pioneer the new world would reserve his family not just wealth and fortune beyond their wildest dreams, but a spot in history. 
That man, that genius, that opportunist, he was my ancestor. Upon settling down what would soon be America, Henry began experimenting on the business side of things. He elected to open up a shop. He elected to open up an apothecary shop to serve the people in Georgia. He found moderate success in this endeavor, enough to earn him his pennies and nickels to feed the family. But just as intelligence begets wealth, wealth begets greed. To simply survive in the new world would not be enough for Henry, no. He had to thrive. After countless market experimentations and new endeavors, the man and his next of kin eventually settled on the medicinal industry. That was what inevitably birthed the Elodia Pharmaceuticals Conglomerate. And that was the introduction to my Family Tree's essay. The essay in question was a simple run-of-the-mill assignment, compile your family tree, write a short passage about everyone. The nature of the assignment wasn't rooted in ambition, teacher would be satisfied if we spelled our parents' names correctly, much less something to the lengths of which I wrote. But a basic blurb doesn't do my great family justice. It didn't do my father any justice. Naturally, I had to put my utmost effort into the project. It did not be enough for me to be lazy on one assignment, but for me to be lazy on one with his family name attached would be disastrous. In 1852, Walter Elodia, Henry's great-grandson, was the one to inevitably take ownership of the business following the latter's passing. At that time, it was nothing more than a simple shop, not the behemoth business it is today. Thankfully, Henry was adapt. And he was born into a time where clocks were slowly mechanizing, communes establishing, and, and with the convenience of technology, society truly had time for introspection. We, as a collective, all came to the same realization. We're broken. We're all shattered shards of glass washed up on the shores of this new world, left to mingle with the sand. Of course, Walter, ever the innovator, came up with a solution to filter out the us from ourselves. Morphine. Product took off, and our family found quarters and dollars replacing what was once nickels and pennies. From there, we expanded. We were resilient. We were intelligent. The materials of this essay are a bit heavy-handed and overtly positive, I admit that. I'm open to critiques. But I needed to make sure my father was aware I understood our family's claim to fortune, that I did an adequate job portraying our lineage. I couldn't have him be disappointed with me. He'd hate me if I were to mess this up. <sighs> Not like it would have mattered anyway. The mere fact... I needed his approval to even submit this assignment in the first place shows how much I rely on him. How little I really understand how stupid I really am. No, 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 Greg, come on, put yourself together. You're going to get this assignment done, you'll do it perfectly. You can prove to him how intelligent you are, how you still deserve that last name, Elodia. The same one casting shadows like the peak of some gargantuan mountain. In 1952, Samuel Elodia, my father, was born. With his work a constant bitter mistress, he innovated once more into the field of psychiatric pharmaceuticals. He was the latest in a great line of innovators who constantly found new ways to take our crumpled glass debris, painstakingly form it back together, and make us whole again. Alas... 
Well, his fortune thrived further than his great-grandfather Henry would have ever imagined. He did not have an ideal successor to carry on his legacy, our family's legacy. So all of the weight was on me to live up to the shadow of this grand lineage. This, this impossibly long list of inventors and innovators. And to think, <laughs> I only got an 89% on that essay. For all my detailed pondering, all my rich, detailed family history, none of it was enough. I'd forgotten, in the pure scale of those around me, to write anything about my roots. About me. I wasn't so furious for messing up to such a degree. <laughs> I'd have laughed myself sick at the pure irony. Ah, rather clever kid. He's adapted rather well to the facility, breaking out of his shell and learning to actually put his foot down. And that worries me. I can't trust his complacency the way I can with some of the others in this facility. I'm currently keeping my eye on him and will be taking corrective action if needed. Now for our final tape of the day... This story was told to my assistant, Michelle, by patient number 258, in what appears to be a passive-aggressive vent toward his past and his life as a whole, as reflected through a, um, video game guide? Uh, just listen to it. A Gamer's Guide to Ruining Your Life Written by Storm, edited by Storm, proofread by Storm so, what you want to do first is boot up your save, or create one, if you hadn't done that yet. Your default character should be a rogue type with way too many talent points and charisma, and not nearly enough in intelligence. Since I personally didn't really like the sound of the default name, I named my character Storm. Cool name, right? So your character Storm starts in the slums with no equipment or armor. I recommend picking up a few items on your way to do the main, like the empty bottle in the lobby and the healing elixir in the bathroom. You'll want to sneak by the dad NPC on the couch. He has a really short aggro range, but a really high chance of a critical hit. Then you'll want to check some of the drawers to see if you can find some spare coins, which is pretty unlikely given the spawn rates for those items are really bad in this area of the map. If you do find them, they'll be important to perform the bus skip, which will help your character conserve stamina. If you don't, then sucks for you, you're walking to the first dungeon. On your way over, you might as well check some of the trash piles to find some loot. It could always be useful for later, you never know! So, the cool thing about this dungeon, which, fun fact, is called School in the American release of this game, is that it's really not worth playing. So I sometimes opt to perform the skip function, though that ends up giving some penalties to my score. But since we're shooting for at least a passing score on this playthrough, guess I'll just have to endure it. Before going, though, Make sure to take some of that healing elixir to make sure you recover the lost stamina from overworld traversal. 
So, I'm sure you know how to pass the school dungeon at this point, so might as well rush right past the final boss and straight to the afternoon after. So you're just loitering around, not willing to close the game and go home just yet. But you're still left without any clear objective. Welcome to my life. And what do you do without a main objective? Side quests! From here, you should try and explore the map. See if you can find anything to do. You cross over the bridge and... Oh, you've got the poison status effect. Good thing you've got your healing elixir to keep you going. Past the bridge, you listen to the stories of a senile old adventurer, a wanderer selling third-rate goods, and a crafty thief who lurks in the shadows. From the adventurer, you're told to be wary of the narrator, the omnipotent man who controls the world at large. Wonder if he's talking about me. What a funny guy, right? A run-in with the Wanderer promises to be lucrative, however, as he tempts you into the natural beauty of ceramic vases. Smash! Crash! Shatter! Blash! You destroy the vases and steal the money inside. While you're victory, the hope you'll finally have enough to refill your potions and afford a carriage rental is present. It's short-lived. The lurking thief snags the coin. And with it, your sense of survival. Ugh, ow. A splitting headache brings you back to reality. You aren't some brave adventurer. You aren't even a hero completing some larger-than-life quest. There's no final boss or side quests. No. This is real life. And real life sucks. You're an addict. A waste. So hopeless you barely have the strength to pretend you're alright. Even worse. All of this. All of these silly metaphors and colorful lies. They're not caused by some intoxicated state. No. It's just your method of cloaking what you don't want to think about. You've been falling like this for a while. When did the issue start? When you first tried the elixir? When you first failed to stop taking it? When you first needed yourself to be saved by her? No. The problem's not how you act or the things you do. The problem is you. Selfish, impulsive, chronically dependent you. You could be taking care of your little sister. The one you left to drown in that rotting house. The one you left to drown in that rotting house. But no. You're here. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of the night, selfishly forgetting reality. This is why you avoid the real world, isn't it? This way, you don't have to think about how shitty you're really being. Hey, don't worry too hard. You can always reset your save data. Reboot your console. Forget. Try again. And that's that. Frankly, I'm not interested in talking much about him. He's a liability. Now, I'm sorry once more for taking up so much of your time, but, um, could I just spare a little bit more of your time to tell you about this, uh, this fascinating story I read? 
Did I ever tell you about this story I read? Wonderful piece about this young man who came into contact with a mysterious entity who offered him a chance to live any predetermined life of his choice. Whatever he wanted to achieve, his life would be arranged to fulfill that exact purpose. Naturally, the young man requested a story in which he rose to power, accruing endless wealth and notoriety. However, this entity dealt its cards mischievously. In exchange for his dream, the man's life would be strapped down, regulated. Shadows would forever crowd the corners of his vision. Cameras would always seem aimed in his direction. His every move would be carefully observed, as if to prove that every event would happen in his favor, as he was told. Despite living his best life, it felt vacant. What was the point of everything if it was fated to happen? Is there any point to living an orchestrated life, to living a story where every decision you make is ultimately decided for you? The world is vapid and cold as it is. Must we deprive ourselves of free will as well? The man took the entity upon its offer, welcomed the wayward spirit into his world. He found that everything he ever wanted fell into his lap, and soon he had more than he could ever dream of. But, 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 it wasn't all that he hoped for. You see, this man desired power over everything else, a high-ranking job, Large shares of even larger companies, a room with a view. But with age, he realized that this wasn't what he really wanted. All he ever dreamed of was human connection, and his young self had hoped that this entity would make that come true. He'd keep searching for that connection, but he never found it. It was destined in the very story he wrote that his happiness would forever evade him. His own naive dream in this childish dedication to fulfilling it became his one true obstacle. Truly ironic, isn't it? This... This is what you do to a man, Dr. Kaysinger. You wind him up, make him feel important. Make him believe he's the center of the world. And then make him believe he's the only man in the world. And then you allow him to rot alone with his power. His perfectly calculated, perfectly observed, perfect power. I have been slaving away for more than a decade trying to craft the Perfect medication, being your loyal employee and doing everything you need. For once, could you spare us something? Anything? I know I'm ringing on deaf ears. You. You could care less whether this whole place burned down tomorrow. You gave us the money to continue operating, but this time limit is impossible! In all my time here, not a single one of my discoveries came overnight, so please, reconsider. There's so much great work that's happening here. 
truly groundbreaking work with the medications and, and, and these results. If you weren't so busy, I'd invite you over, but... I mean... I... I... I want you to see it. 